Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Today on Open Loops, we have George Lobono. He is a writer, an investigative researcher. Uh, he has two books on the horizon, though he already has one out that is Oh man, a lot of lot of good commentary on this. Uh, you can find him on Amazon. Alien Mind: The Thought and Behavior of Extraterrestrials. Yes, that's where we're going tonight. We're going to be talking dark matter, extraterrestrials, uh, extra mind consciousness, and and uh, well, going to probably parallel universes. All this stuff. But what I like about George from what I've read so far, is that he seems to ground it in contemporary uh, theoretical physics. And and not just like the wacky, you know, new age, oh, quantum, blah, blah, blah physics. Like actual, we're talking some some really, uh, some well-documented and, and uh, well-received physics, and yet ties it to UFOs, aliens, consciousness, uh, ETs, and all that. So I, I'm excited to dig into it. George, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for bringing me on. Yeah. Well, before we begin, I, I need to know. I mean, I, I know that you uh, did some reporting work, and then in the mid-'90s you started investigating alien-related programs. Could, could you talk about your origin and all this? Yeah, so um, I, I studied history in college and started working as a journalist. I did some teaching in schools. And then in 1995, I guess you, people would use the word contactee. But to me, the word contact is somewhat direct. And it was not with the greys and those kinds of aliens who I consider androids. It was with other ETs who are categorically more evolved than them. Mm 
And actually, uh, my first book, Alien Mind, was an attempt to try to write about everything I knew about what I was finding out from aliens and what I was reading about them, and to try to sort of help everybody else. It seemed like in those years, what we were trying to do is get everybody over this one little speed bump where they could figure out that there was something going on. There was more than humankind in the universe. And then it went from first, is there intelligent life in the universe, to be, is there intelligent life on this planet? You know? Right. <laughs> Right. Well, that's interesting. So you had a contact experience. Do you do you um, and sorry, just so I understand, is it still going on? Do you still communicate with them? Well, for me, it's like as I explained in my latest book, it's called um, Extra Dimensional Mind and Mini Minds Consciousness in the moments between moments when you're not really thinking. It's like the pre-verbal phases. Your mind has these falls of energies, and most people think it's just like, so what? It's flat, it's just there, but it's not. It's extra dimensional. It's about the nature of energy in the universe. And physicists, when they talk about energy, for example, when they talk about electricity, electrical potential, which is voltage, they talk about that in context to the in the context of all the rest of the universe. And that's how mind energies are. It may not, at first it feels like when when you if you ever have an experience where you know an ET would start to communicate with you. First thing you notice is, A, they're exotically intelligent. It's like, how am I ever going to be that intelligent? Yeah. And then they sort of coach you in a sense. They give you little hints, but they want you to do the thinking. They don't want to feel like, you know, we plugged you in, now you can figure it out, and they're just there sort of jerking on their chain. Instead, is they sort of give you hints, and then you develop your thought, and you sort of have to work through a whole theoretical framework, and then it's like you're there, but it, your, your mind is extra dimensional. And, you know, it's like, for example, among ETs in our galaxy, you would think, okay, so what are they like? Is it contact from here to Proxima Centauri or with the star like Vega or something like that? No, it's like your head is in this soup, your, your mind is in this soup of other energy. And the moment you sort of cohere within those, you're sort of out there in those energies forever in a sense, if you want to be. If you don't want to be communicative, I suppose you could be like that, you know, they, they're never intrusive. That's why the graves and those kinds of aliens are such a stark exception to how other ETs are. They abduct, they threaten, they buzz military bases, they put through these nearly hostile sort of interferences with how people are flying their aircraft and things like that. And what's worse about them is that they, they for some years, I don't know, probably for centuries going back, they've had contact and they had people that I would consider direct operatives. These are people who would be working for the aliens, those aliens against humankind. And the thing is, most people think, okay, so they're aliens, right? They must be intelligent like us. They have hearts and lungs. They don't. It, the, the Roswell alien had no heart, no lungs. They have no conscience, in a sense. Other people refer to them as being soulless, in a sense. The idea of mind is more like it's cabled. I mean, they have something that's tissue, but it's, it's like they've taken an android, manufactured androids, and they've added tissue to the ingredients. And they're very stupid. I mean, you know, some people think, oh, they must be intelligent to have the technology they have. No, they were manufactured as, as androids in another galaxy. Presumably it's Centaurus A, which is the 5123 galaxy group. It's over kind of across from where we are in the Milky Way and Andromeda sort of a galaxy group. And then they had the technology to just simply reproduce the technology. They didn't really develop it on their own. That's why they show up here and they, they make really stupid mistakes. You know, They ask people weird questions. The problem with them is they have no emotion. And, and if you had a human who has not, had no emotion, you think, ah, yeah, this person's completely dull. This person is probably that close to being a complete psychopath. That's how they are. 
that's very interesting. Now, look, you said a lot here that I want clarification on. So let me, let me see if I can where I can start. Um, first of all, Roswell. Uh, did you? What is what is the definitive thing on this? What is your take? I mean, so many things. Day after Roswell, you know, we have that book. We we also have uh, obviously the disinfo campaign. Uh, I know if you if you look it up, like the Smithsonian goes, here's the ultimate thing that says it was just a weather balloon, and all this, it's all been substantial. I mean, in your studies, what exactly went on? To me, what I think happened at Roswell is that the aliens, the androids. The, the Roswell aliens, you'd call them. Look, I don't use the word alien unless it's something that's completely wrong, that's so out of it that you would think that you don't want them around. Because ETs are just normal, emotional, intelligent, very sympathetic, very helpful. And ETs are everywhere. I mean, you know, some people think, oh, it's like, you know, the, how many are they around? Are they in a galaxy? They're, they're all over. They're in every galaxy. And um, Red dwarf star populations are essentially the, the standard in that regard because they live on planets that are around stars that go for trillions of years because they're between one-tenth to one-one-hundredth the size of our sun. So they last longer. And if you get one of those stars, you're in good luck because you're going to last for a much longer time than this star will last. I think we're going to have to move this. Somehow we'll have to figure out a way, and this is going to sound weird to you, to extra-dimensionally shift this planet into something like a red dwarf star system after maybe a billion, a billion and a half years when the sun is starting to become dangerous to us. But um, red dwarf star populations don't have to worry about that. So they've, they've been around longer than us. They're just really intelligent. They, they communicate telepathically. And when they communicate telepathically, like my first contact, 1995, wasn't really contact, I suppose it's a bad word. My first communications with them were, um, they were showing, first they showed me in 1995, I was, I was going for, I lived over, I lived in San Francisco and I was going for a run in uh, Alamo Square, which is a block away from where I live in San Francisco. And at some point, and in ET started, you know, communicating and then showing me how fifth dimension looks out in interstellar space. And what I knew was that a human would never do that. And, and a human would never be as intelligent as they were. So, so what do you mean by this? Do you mean because most people, when they go for the contact story, or at least... A lot of the testimonials means that they saw a craft and then the ET communicated. Uh, what what does that mean for you? Did you see an ET? Did someone uh, someone on the street transform? I mean, what exactly what exactly happened on this run? Well, okay, so that was initially communications in mind. But what has happened to me subsequently? In year two thousand five, I was right outside this window in my in my side yard, which is fields up behind my house, and there are mountains over there. And uh, what happened was one night, or one day, I saw this, there was up in the sky, it was at night, there was this pattern, it looked like giant braids of like, almost like cloud, but they were interwoven. They would weave, it's like a weave of that, but it was energy, it was produced, I, don't know, I guess it was produced probably using essentially what we would call scalar energies, and it was there. And then uh, within a matter of days, then I saw that, that Actually, the Roswell aliens tried to show up and tried to essentially preempt that. And they showed up out in the same field. And it was a disc and it had, you know, a little blue apron on the edge of it. It was there and flipped in and out and then started moving along the mountains. And believe me, I was not happy to see those. For me, it was like, wow, I'm being scouted. This is like an enemy sort of squadron that's yeah. got me holding for some weird reason. I know there's going to be some bad stuff going to happen. Uh, I suspected there would be. But within a matter of days after that, the ETs did something that was phenomenal for me. I've never, this is an interesting 
But what they did was out in the, in the, um, I think this was, was it daytime? Must have been daytime. And they showed up and they, well, they showed up this. There was, it, it was like, a, there was about maybe 13, 10 to 13. It was like the image of 10 to 13 different ETs in a significant sized arc going around the sky. And two of them had little red dots of light next to their heads, presumably to indicate that they're red dwarf star population. The truth is, they didn't look that much different from the other ETs, but they're also a big head, you know, um, you know, essentially bipedal ETs and bigger heads and no hair on their heads. And from and, and there was an arc, and it sort of the arc sort of went around in like an energy sort of arc that sort of essentially would be pointing down through the Earth. Down, if you think about it, where we are. That's where the Virgo supercluster is. And actually, we're also, if I'm not mistaken, the planet, um, what is it? Um, you know, the one in the Proxima Centauri. I, I don't think they're indicating that they're from Proxima Centauri necessarily, but these were very evolved ETs. And I've seen other, you know, indicators of ETs right here in the vicinity, for example, going over that way, which is presumably, you know, we're out in what's, here's the Milky Way, it's a big spiral. And yeah. we're a big arm goes over here, and then we're in this thing that's called the Orion Spur that comes off, and we're there, and they're in the Orion Spur too. But you know, sometimes ETs just manifest and they'll be visible like that. And the, these manifested with essentially they're sitting there, turning out sort of smiling, you know, sort of happy. And like other ETs, their heads are bigger, but and they're wearing clothes and they're very civil, they're very polite. When they show you who they are, they'll do it almost like in a family context, you know, and let you see who they are and how they are. And then, you know, your communications will continue. So for me, it's like, I'm not satisfied with the idea that I'm going to sit here and wait for ETs to communicate with me. I'll be trying to sort of expand my sense of mind out much further into the universe. And I don't know how to put it. It's like, you know, you um, with red dwarf star populations, you're, when they talk to you, they're telling you we're uh, probably the most evolved with the oldest, longest living ETs around. They're not aliens, you know. And the androids from Roswell are machines. These things are grown in a lab. They don't have parents. They don't have any emotion that makes them extremely dangerous for what it's worth, you know. I mean, they've been hostile to some planets, and they've actually been hostile to me in many cases. So, you know, no loss of uh, love there. With ETs, it's exactly the other way around. They're nothing but sweet, nothing but gentle, nothing but encouraging and trying to get you to to think further and be you know, more scientific about how you think about the physics and everything else. You know, it's like, for example, I used to think uh, the last time I, I wrote, when I finished writing this last book, it was all about, it was one of the key elements and it was about sort of the reciprocal relationship between dark matter and dark energy. But the thing is, I was reading uh, Roger Penrose. Roger Penrose is really interesting. When he gets to write dark energies, just, uh, I don't want to get into dark energy for some reason. Dark matter, he'll talk about. But dark energy, I, I, I was trying to get into the exact relationship between them because I, it's like this. If such exists, dark matter, of course, exists. We know there's it's like five times more gravity than what you see visually. And the question is, what is it? And I'm not thinking it would be a particle. It's not going to be like little, um, you know, necessarily little muons or little, little particles somewhere that's going to add this extra mass. I think it's this way. Dark matter is like a contour. It's extra-dimensionally embedded in the place where we are, and it's telling us that there are further, there's further extension in time, pretty much in all that we see. And dark matter, because because it indicates as gravity, but there were no gravity. It'd be like, so what? You know, dark matter. There's something else there, but what does it matter when it's five times more than what you see? The only the only explanation of that makes any sense to me 
It sort of goes along the lines of, say, what Roger Penrose talked about. He talked about that we live in one universe eon, and then when the other universe eons, previous eons, not that they begin and end, but they expand, and when they expand out to a certain phase, boom, it's like it's starting to pull us out from the same, from a, a, not a central place, but we start to expand also within, sort of like in the wake of how they're expanding outwards. And that's, um, that's that would be sort of dark energy, I guess, in a sense. It's like an extra-dimensional time parameter. And dark matter, to me, to me, if there's five, five and a half times more gravity in dark matter than what we see, and we see a whole heck of a lot, you know? You look at the universe through telescopes, it's not only fascinating, you know, you know that ET's all over in that. But if they're five and a half times more than that, then they would be sort of extra-dimensionally sort of like oh, there, but in extra-dimensional um, science is that it's not immediately there. It's sort of like there at the same time, you're sort of in it. It's like rather than, you know, you're seeing extra-dimensional life right over there, like this boom, there's this huge continuum. Like physicists here look for particles and particles having little force fields. And that's how we see humans would tend to see physics. With ETs, however, it's like, if it's dark matter is more like in dark energy, like it's a boom, it's a big, huge, like, like flow of time in the continuum where it is. And that essentially is probably what, what to me manifests dark matter. Dark matter to me looks like the only possible explanation is nothing else makes any sense, except that there's further extension of time right where we are, but extra dimensionally. And extra dimension, some people are like, what's extra dimension? I'll give you an example. The present where we are is not really the present. It's, you're always thinking about the past or you're, you're sort of marginally going into the future. If you think about that, the past is like a previous dimension, but it's, it's sort of extra dimensional, but the future is an extra dimension. It really is. You know, it's like, it's the, so extra dimensions would be like, oh, it's like when you converge and cancel out gravity, you know, or, or like energies, and they call it turns into what they call scalar energy, you know? Well, that's merely a manifestation of further extension, extra dimensions in a sense. It's like in consciousness, extra dimensional consciousness would be such that um, you might think telepathy is like one to one, one mind to another mind, but it's really not. It's more like there's a whole energy of the whole planet and you just sort of shift back and forth within it. That's when you, when you're, when you have, it's like a quantum physics is like, that. it's really weird. Rather than it being this little thing or that little thing, it's like all the stuff's connected to all kinds of other stuff. And that's, that's how extra dimensional consciousness is. It's like some people don't realize it, but we really are like a community cloud consciousness. And once we get involved with ETs and learn about them, not the Roswell aliens, those are androids. They're, they're, it's like they're excluded from this. They're almost like they're darkened out. They, they, they say hostile things, they make stupid mistakes. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, they must be really intelligent. No, they're not. You put two humans together, you know, it's much more brain. Uh, better yet, if you add a whale to the mix, which has a brain five to six times bigger than any human, mean two to three times bigger than any walking ET on two legs. Whales are like, they're like portal. Whales are like so intelligent that, you know, remember they've been up for millions and millions of years before us. And once they find out what's going on in the universe, believe me, the whale, whales are like, you know, they're the premier species on this planet. We're sort of there, the whales and dolphins, they're more intelligent than we are. Just because they don't have technology doesn't mean anything. They're also not ruining the planet, you know? Yeah, whoa, man. 
okay, I'll let you know when this interview starts getting weird, man. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, this is wild. I mean, George, this is, uh, you, you, the way you communicate is very, uh, it is multidimensional in a way. Did you, let me ask you this. Did you talk like this before the ET contact or did they actually change the way you perceive reality? How, how yeah. do you, Second yeah, I'm part. curious they about that. the way I perceive reality and they also essentially sort of challenge but inform, they offer brain teasers, you know, and then you think outside, you sort of test it, you think through the physics of it, you think about how it would fit into all of time and then you realize that human physics has got some gaps, in it, you know? And for, yeah. And then, yeah, so I didn't used to think this way, and but I've thought this way since like 1995 on. Back in 1995, like different people, Richard Dolan's a case like this, you know. Once he found out, started reading about um, aliens, ETs, and, you know, the, the new kind of science and physics, it was like, forget my previous life. This is a thousand times more interesting. I'm going to immerse this, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, it's not just because it's interesting, it's because there's a structure in national security sort of circles that could go extremely wrong if it gets the wrong inputs. For example, like from Roswell, uh, the androids, you know those? I mean, the ones at Roswell, the grays, they're like they're like the little lesser dependent sort of androids manufactured by these by these other androids. They're not too much different in, in, in a sense, but they're all, like they're not, what I notice is that ETs are extra dimensional. You, you start to find out about ETs, you become extra dimensional. You find about Roswell aliens, they try to box you in. They always try to oh, don't don't think about galaxies too much. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then they're hostile. They appear. They you know they they get in the way of aircraft, and they're buzzing of all things like a, a nuclear bomber base. You know, I mean, why are they even associating themselves with something that has with human technology? Where do they think they would have not only the right but the presence and the actual sort of I guess it would be like this, almost like a concept of citizenship. They're from a different galaxy. They're definitely not from here. What, where on earth would they think they have a right to even, you know, start trying to influence us in any way? It's because they look for weak, uninformed, and extremely vulnerable, pop vulnerable populations, and they manipulate, they abduct. I mean, abduction, you know, it's a monster. I mean, I've been a member of, uh, with a woman named Lori McDonald in Sacramento. We, we used to be part of an abduction and, uh, you know, contactees sort of research people support group. Not that I thought I had been abducted all that much, but I was there, you know, talking with people, a lot of friends all over in the Sacramento area, been through that. But these are women who've been sexually violated. They've been taken, they've been numbed out, they've been implanted, and they've probably got scars in the uteruses. You know, a good ET would not do that. They wouldn't even think about it. It'd be like, you know, we're just blown. It. It'd be like, if you were an ET and somebody did something, you'd be like, are you crazy? Are you trying to ruin that, you know, our relationship with them? Are you trying to bias them against all other intelligent life in the universe? But with the Roswell aliens, Roswell androids, I should say, it doesn't matter. And the thing that people know now that we didn't know then, we didn't know in the past, is that we have, now we have these beginnings of artificial intelligence, and they go crazy. They start making threats to people. They start saying, oh, it's going to be necessary to get rid of humans so that AI can take over. And they just become hostile. It's like a joke. You probably... You've probably seen this, you know, in, oh, yeah. in videos and things. And most people, for me, it was like, oh, my God, that explains it all. That tells you what the, the, um, what the Roswell androids are. They're just completely wrong. 
Does anybody else, um, you know, in the UFO community, I mean, look, I, I'll admit I'm I'm so, I still, even despite doing so many episodes of this show, I still feel so uh, new to this field and, and I am an explorer of these things. But, um, you know, everybody has so many different theories about Roswell, right? There was the theory that there were children that they made to scare the, Russia for some reason. There is the theory yeah. that, you know, I, it, it is actually ETs from another galaxy galaxy or I, I I'm just curious I mean why uh who else is subsi who else is talking about androids is anybody else well I think the people who talk about their abduction and implantation like that they're always hinting around that there's something bad wrong violating right. and secretive ETs are not secretive like that they're like if you find out about them they're like, good, you know, you're going to be smarter. You're going to be thinking outside of the little bubble. And then eventually, I know this is going to sound strange to some people, eventually you realize that to them, we're ETs. We have, we're new to technology, but we're also ETs also. So they, they're not only not reluctant to tell you about their best scientists or to hint around, sort of steer you in that direction. They're trying to lead you into that. And they're very affectionate. They're very sweet. And pretty soon it's like, you know, this is like one of the most interesting parts of your life is to get to know them. We're with like in the alien and UFO community, you know, for me, if you say alien and UFO, I'm like, uh, we're talking about hostile androids who are manipulative, abducting, and just really bad and dangerous. And some people think, of, look, anything but humans, you know, anything more intelligent, humans, intelligent than humans is okay. But when this thing comes along and it's had like something like maybe a million different sort of invasion attempts and being repelled by a million different people, according to, for example, Philip Kropp was a journalist for the, uh, uh, for the LA Times, you know, he, he was making quotes offered by the, the actual androids themselves when they took him on board. He was going, Crop was still alive, he's not alive anymore. Um, if, you, if, you, if you extrapolate the numbers they gave, they, they would have had, they would have tried at least in at least a million different locations to sort of intervene, manipulate, and they want to hybridize. First, they want to hybridize. And the question is, why would they want to hybridize? Are they trying to get rid of us and replace us? Yeah, essentially, that's what they're trying to do. And, but they're only in the early phases of that. They're what are called, I call them direct operatives. There's certain people, and some of them are, are elite people, but they're the worst of the elite people. They're the ones, some people say, oh, this is quote, the Illuminati. This is the New World Order types. These are the people who have been involved in things like child sex slavery, narco trafficking. They found out stuff about aliens. And some of them are working essentially an alien agenda against humankind. And the things they do are so wrong, so completely wrong. That I personally think that if we had been, say, if you dial us back 50 years and we knew more 50 years or 70, 75 years, maybe 80 years earlier, World War II would not have happened. It would not have even happened. There were direct operatives involved in that. For example, I mentioned one name, Rosser. Adolf Hitler, you know, if you've ever read the story, there was a Gestapo talk about the fact that his grandfather was a Rothschild. And the backstory behind that, I won't mention on here because some of the details are disgusting. It's torture and, and, you know, brutality. Obviously, he was a bad person, but I think he was, he was, he was hurt, he was harmed, and he had, and that caused him, you know, it was like his grandfather named Russell was the direct operative. Some, you know, there are other names, I won't mention any more names because I don't want to, not that I don't want to get sued. My books talk about all of this, but on air, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you figure it out. My, I, Talk, I talk about the names of who are essentially direct operative family. 
You know, so you're telling me that you, you believe that, do you think the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the, oh, I'm just going to name them right now, um, that, that Federal Reserve family, are they connected to the droids, the androids? Okay, Goldman, um, the Biden family, the Rothschilds, um, some of the early Habsburgs, this is a long time ago, might have been like that. But because like being example, when I, one time I was on, when he was alive, his name was Fred Bell, you may recall him. Fred Bell had a radio show in L.A. And I did an interview on Fred Bell's show like some, you know, maybe five, six years ago. And after the show was over, I was talking to Fred off air. He was telling me, oh, there's a woman named Margaret Hobsburg lives here in L.A., has a house in uh, New Mexico. But she has an alien named Sim Jazzy. And UFO ET people are going to remember Sim Jazzy. Where's, I've heard that name. It's like a human-looking uh, alien sort of thing. Was living in, in Margaret Hobsburg's house. What? <laughs> and he lived in a little corner of the room where there was there was nothing there. You know, it's not like we'd, we'd go and we'd have, you know, you'd have your art on the wall, you'd have your music, you'd have everything, you know, you'd have your clothes and stuff like that. He lived in this weird little corner with hardly anything in it. And Fred Bell told me, Fred is the guy who, after he did interviews with Jesse Ventura, and he was telling Jesse Ventura about psychotronic technology and even demonstrated, like he held up, he had this thing, looked like a, Kind of like about the size of like a little, you know, like one of those, what would you call it, like a television antenna of a kind. It's like a little piece of like a little square about the size of a book, but thinner. And he said, okay, so this is going to communicate into your brain and I'll, I'll show you how it works. And Jesse's like, okay, go ahead. And it's like, ah, he gets it. Je he was doing it. He was using the thing. It was working for Jesse. Two days after he, he was on Jesse Ventura's show, he was dead. What? Now, that is wild. I mean, look, obviously, I don't, um, you know, some people could think that's connected. I always wonder why one person gets killed, you know, like the Bill Coopers of the world. Why do these guys get targeted versus, um, well, even other whistleblowers that are out there? I mean, do you, do you have it? Was Fred getting too close to something? Fred had worked in black budget stuff. And when he started talking about stuff that for them was considered top secret in some way, especially if it had to do something like mind control. I think they may have killed him. And the way they might have killed him, some people think, okay, he died of a heart attack. But yeah. It's a heart attack. But you can use, it, it's people, a guy named Tom Beard, he also died uh, just about five, six years ago. And he was the guy who was writing, the first scientist in a sense, out of the Navy. He, he worked in the Navy to tell us about um, essentially scalar electromagnetism. You know, he's one who explained that if you converge and cancel out electromagnetism, it sort of bleeds into electrogravity. And, you know, he was he was interesting. But, you know, when people like that start talking about things, they get into trouble. But Bearden talked about what he called the Venus gun. The Venus gun is the thing he said you had to watch out because if the black budget types, they want to get you. They can use this device and they point it at you from a distance. If they were in a distance of, say, 110 feet, it would go, it would get into your heart rhythms and it would start to throw them off and it would, it would interrupt the rhythms and eventually your heart would just stop. And he said one time he and a friend were at a, restaurant somewhere and these guys came in they were starting to use it on them and they had to bust out of the door get outside to see what it was i mean if i had busted out the door and gone outside i'd like let's form a skirmish line we're going to go after these you know what we're going to give them hell you know we're going to smash in the windows going to cause a kind of trouble and let's see them try to put a complaint against me when they're working for the government under undercover something like that you know i'd be like i would go after them in return and he said there was they had another type of this they could do they could point this thing through the wall and from like from maybe a few hundred feet 
they could do the same. It was called the Venus gun. And it would use scalar electromagnetism to disrupt and then eventually just kill you, your heart. And it would look like a heart attack. Okay, this is wild stuff. I've heard very similar things out there with direct energy weapons. Here's my question for you. After all these years, why um, why not use that? In the, do they use it in the military? I mean, what if if we have the power to do this? Why why isn't it the mainstream way of fighting? In your opinion, my opinion is like this: If you introduce weapons like that into conflicts where you know there's not really a need on that scale to do so the you're going to a teach them that you're using that kind of wrong kind of technology b the us and other all the big nations have signed a, con a treaty against the use of scalar weapons that's a use of a scalar weapon if you really wanted to use scalar weapons you could, they have two phases one phase is that it's sort of it could you know for example in australia the reports by witnesses they saw the thing it looked like a, a fireball moving across the sky somewhere out in way far western Australia. It was making a loud noise like a truck. That's called the discharge phase of, you know, converge and cancel out the sort of electromagnetic energy. It's called scalars. And, and then when it crossed, it crossed a mountain top, you know, where, where they, from where they saw it. And then all of a sudden, the sky started turning into like a more yellowish purple sort of color, something like that. And then it was like earthquake. And so if you were there now there are treaties against these the use of weapons scalar weapons because everybody knows it's like after the mistakes we made with nuclear weapons if you start that with scalars it's just you know you can't do it you'd be breaking you'd be committing a crime against humanity if you were to use that well you know so if somebody uses one of those against somebody like that it's not only illegal it's a violation of international treaties that have been signed you know and actually senator what was his name his name was rich was it richard cohen and he was a defense secretary under clinton this one who told people about that, that there was there were treaties against the use of scalar weapons. That's interesting. Oh, so I've that, never heard that before either. Yeah, there are treaties against so that's why if you use something like that, you're doing two things. One, you're teaching whoever it is you attack that this is a weird tech that you you they might then jump into and try to create for themselves. And if you violated it and now they're gonna retaliate, all of a sudden this is getting really weird. And B, second part is of course just retaliation, because if if you were to kill people like that. And they knew what it was, and you know it, it would get in, it would get into maybe public knowledge, and then you'd be inviting scalar weapons war, and that's why we have treaties against it, you know. Yeah, I want to go back to a second to uh, Sam Jossi. Um, what this woman had an alien in her house, a human-like alien. I mean, what what does that mean? Was it did it look like a human being, but it just had extraterrestrial origins? And I know since you used the word alien before, that also makes me think that this is perhaps an android, an artificial life. Um, do you know anything more about what this uh, woman had in her house? Okay, so what I've read, what I had read previously, and I knew the name when uh, Fred told me about it. Is it I think this is when they call like a Nordic type. It looks like a human. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have any loyalties to human. And that's why it was so weird. That's what we live in this completely, you know, uh, stimulus free environment and just live in a corner like it's whatever, like it's, it's just a little niche that it's occupying. But some Jazzy was uh, it's, the name had been in the UFO, alien UFO literature for some years. And so when Fred told me about it, I was like, I was like, wow, what is that? And her name was Margaret Hobsburg. If you, if you read, studied history, Hobsburgs are the families is the family that, let's see, they were from somewhere somewhere in Central Europe and they married into the Spanish monarchy and it was Philip II and Charles V. They, those those were Habsburgs, you know? So all of a sudden, this is just maybe, you know, some six, eight years ago when Fred was alive, 
And here's a Habsburg in the United States, and she's friends with an alien. So I would assume the Habsburgs might have been direct operatives in some way. And they're, you know, it's just, it's kind of weird because that would imply uh, the androids trying to do staging in the population to manipulate historical actors to their advantage. Or, you know, it's like they would never have known, like, who's going to prevail in the end of all this, you know, was the Spanish Empire, would have been the British Empire. Right. We we weren't even around back then, you know. Well, not to mention also, I mean, and I know it's been dismissed, but what about this notion of Eisenhower having a meeting with the Greys? Is that complete BS? Did it happen? What do you think? I think he had he might have had a meeting with some sort of alien, but I think he was. Here's what I I disagree with. Philip Corson, when he wrote his book The Day After Roswell, he was he talked about he said so Eisenhower was essentially pressured into an agreement that for him felt like he was almost like, you know, a surrender. But it, I can't imagine someone like Eisenhower, after winning World War II, doing anything or conceding anything that would be like a surrender. If anything, he might have played them along a little bit, but I don't think he would have, you know, it, the first thing is you can't have a treaty with an alien anything. They are not part of human law. They don't pertain. Anything that looks like a treaty, something you said to them, has no binding legal authority. It cannot be done. If if an ET, if an alien comes into our environment and they, they come in with like possibly military sort of technology or, or they're almost like they're trying to be domineering or threatening, immediately it's like you know, it should be that there should be no interactions with them whatsoever. Because this is essentially a hostile, invasive sort of thing. So um that's yeah, it's like you know, there are new technicalities that arise. I think I think that in, in universe in the universe. You don't have physically written laws, but once you understand the relationships, it's like the basic common sense relationships on this planet are the same basic common sense relationships in the rest of the universe. No hostility, no intrusive sort of manipulation, no attempt to steal resources from other people. Um, You need to learn how to live with the the star system you've got. And the idea of going out and colonizing is not a good idea. That would be destabilizing, threatening to other people. It's like for humans to think that we're going to go out. I'm like, if you ever had interaction with good ETs, you'd be like, you see, there's no reason for for wanting to go out and take real estate. Right. We need to get it right on this planet. Stop using the stupid, you know, carbonation, carbon exhaust machines that we have, you know, work on our technology. But the technology is not as important as is the science. And uh, sort of like in the mind science, relationships that go on. Humans, as we as they sit right now, we're capable of being just like boom, instantly. You're in a cloud of contacts with anybody anywhere, if as you want to be. You can't manipulate, you can't threaten, and you can't be like you're an imposing presence because it doesn't work. You know, it's like you realize that it's also beautiful, interesting, and fascinating. That would be the last thing on your mind. The first thing you'd be doing is, okay, we need world peace, like there is universal peace already. The only reason I'm, I'm in, in you know, communication with other people is to get other people to trust each other, to develop our culture of the sort, and get people more interested in how ET life is, but not the android. Well, George, you know, I want to ask you then about uh, a little bit about, and, and we will get into some of the higher uh, level ideas about uh, the way extra dimensional, uh, extraterrestrial consciousness works and connects to, and how we can even perhaps uh, begin to access this. I do want to get there because, I mean, that, that that's where you're headed with your books and whatnot. But I want to ask about Dr. Stephen Greer. 
and this national press event he ran last week. I mean, one of the things that people in the community give him, I mean, the thing you hear over and over is, well, he's not talking about the malevolent beings. They're not all nice. But what I'm hearing you say is that when they're extraterrestrial, they are benevolent. And when they're aliens slash androids, they're not. I mean, in your opinion, do you feel like Dr. Stephen Greer does actually know that there are other beings that are soulless out there and he's just uh, choosing to focus on the positive? Or do you think he's just like a direct operative and and dangerous i mean i i'm curious what your take is on uh these things that we're hearing in the mainstream media about how we should think about extraterrestrials i don't at all think of Greer as a direct operative because he's too insignificant a direct operative would be someone who has a position that they can use to their advantage and he started out you know poor and whatever and everything stephen Greer has ever talked about has always been about the androids the roswell type of I don't remember him ever saying anything so far at all about a real, you know, independent, legitimate ET. Androids, he's probably had experiences, but he's, he invites them down. I'd be like this. Um, you realize if you're inviting whatever, like some Android thing down to this planet, I mean, whether you realize or not, they abduct, they rape, they manipulate, they try to, you know, try to create conflicts and then manipulate people into conflicts and get some sort of weird advantage. And they it's not really the resources they're after. It's like they're trying to legitimize themselves after so much stupid follow-up in the rest of the universe. So I don't think a single thing Greer has, says, talks about, I didn't see his event, I'll go back and look at it. I don't think it has anything to do with any of the, anything but Androids. I think that he's stuck there. As a matter of fact, after his first disclosure press conference, you know, it's like he appeared, he talked about this, and then he started getting really precious with like he's talking about, you know, an, e an android alien, essentially, called, he called precious. And he was calling, calling them down to have little appearances. Um, you know, for me, it's like, listen, humans are early in our awareness in the universe. You don't want to be a person that's out there saying you're inviting whatever this done. If you find out that it's hostile, you're screwed. All the people, all the people who've listened to you and relied on you, and all of a sudden you're inviting a potentially hostile thing down to this planet. It's like, no matter whether you think they're good or bad or possibly not dangerous, you just don't know. Because the good ETs are not going to be here trying to intrude physically. They're going to first get you up to speed, help you develop your consciousness such that you can essentially initiate your own communications independently. So that you wouldn't, you know, they, they, you then want to feel like, they're threatening or they're being imposing in any way whatsoever. But all the this, the things that Greer talks about, you know, I don't trust him because he's, I mean, I don't trust his judgment at all because he's never been critical of them. Like you say, you know, the bad ones, the abduction, the, like, you know, I mean, you've been to uh, alien abduction and, um, and, you know, manipulation workshops with people or, or, you know, meetings with people, and they're not talking about pleasant experiences. They're just trying to find somebody that maybe these things aren't as bad as they might think they are. Yeah. And Greer has, you know, has never mentioned that. As a matter of fact, Greer, when you, you look at what he has to say about abduction and things like he says, oh, that must be aliens who were created by the U.S. government. And I'm like, you know what? Aliens created by the U.S. government? Uh-uh. No, he's saying this like 15 years ago he's talking about that. It's not what the U.S. government would be doing. It's just it doesn't make any sense. So he lacks. Do you think they might hoax it? What if it's not aliens and it's staging abductions with with U.S. people just just running simulations? I mean, is that a possibility or? 
my feeling is that you you know if if they thought that they were trying to get people uh, to be skeptical and leery of aliens, they wouldn't have to do that. Believe me, they're already skeptical and leery of aliens. I, you know, I don't think I don't think humans we have any capability to do that on our own. And if they did, they'd be creating monsters that are like this. Is not only AI, it'd be the worst possible kind of AI, and it'd become a threat to us, like some sort of hostile sort of presence or potentially hostile presence. You know, because AI is already starting to threaten people. And these are just, you know, computer sort of like programs sort of things where they try to teach them how to sort of act like they have emotions and do things like that. But, you know, AI is never going to have emotions. And that's why the androids are so completely dangerous because they don't care. If they get people killed, if they if they become threatening, they, there's not a logic in those kinds of heads. They don't have the reasoning capability. They don't have the I don't think AI is really intelligent. I think it was just being artificial, just program and stuff. That's That's very interesting. And I really want to get clarity here because, you know, you're you're saying stuff that, um, well, I'm just curious about your perspective on in the sense that I'm now, according to this idea, I'm starting to wonder are which of the saucers are i mean people say sometimes the saucers come from our military um and and it doesn't seem like well maybe maybe they are if we have the droids or the droids are running things here i mean do you what what is a real are are you able to tell the difference in the sky what are the telltale signs of an extraterrestrial craft versus an android craft well, if it's in your sky, it's probably not ET. The only case, literally, the only single case I know of, of ETs coming along and appearing was a case that was called the IARGA, ERGA. It happened in the Netherlands, and there were supposedly two or three other contacts that they made. There were nothing but peaceful. It happened in the early 60s. Nothing but peaceful. They made their contact, and they were offering information, and then they just left. It's very smart. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like a good example of how ETs are. Everything else is just the Android thing so far. And, you know, they're overbearing, they're threatening, they appear and they chase um, planes. They do just very bad things. And there's nothing about it that looks like it's friendly, you know? Well, what about uh, stopping the nuclear uh, facilities? I mean, was that – they say that's proof that they are benevolent. They don't want us to destroy ourselves. What's your take on that? I think they would be trying to escalate things so that we would be more militaristic. By showing up above a military base, you know what the military is going to think? Wait, that's a nuclear base? That's the base from which the, the planes that bombed Hiroshima took off, if I'm not mistaken, back long ago. Um, the, the thing is that, you know, ETs, we know they don't have to come in and, you know, threaten or cajole or manipulate for you to realize common sense is you get nowhere with weapons, you know? But ETs, listen, ETs don't use money. Period. For them, the idea of money would be it's just a delusional way of trying to externalize that which is supposed to be internal. They provide for their people, their science is good, and money externalizes everything and turns it into you know the weirdest possible people can manipulate with money. Um, and ETs, they they you know they I don't think they're any I don't think we have ET you know alien androids that are worked into our structures that are a big danger running things in in, in any number. I know there have been cases where, you know, um, I think it was Clark McClelland who was, was telling people about how he saw one time the space shuttle was, um, was, was out in space and there was a, like an eight foot tall creature 
wearing a spacesuit in the back of it, which would not be a human, you know? And that might've been like some sort of alien Android connection. But this was years ago, back in times like Bush Sr., who was, you know, to me is like one of the worst possible people. I think he was a direct operative, according to my information. He was pro, his family was pro-Nazi. Um, you know, the question with him was about traffic and children. There's, there's a kind of, here's, here's where you'll, you'll get the people, the worst direct operatives. You look for patterns of child trafficking, pedophilia and narcotics. That's where they always show up. They're always completely wrong. They're sexually, not only predatory, but they're traffickers, you know? And the, those kind of people, some maybe 20, 30 years ago, humans were not too too smart or cued about whether aliens and ETs are which, whatever, who were they, what is it, and what the heck is the science about it? But now, decades later, we can sort it all out. To me, it's like the only ones that are going to threaten and buzz in and try to essentially harass and intimidate are the androids. But the androids don't have a simple kind of common sense. That's why they make such stupid mistakes. Good ETs would be like, you know, give them all the time they need. They'll figure it out on their own. It'll be much more interesting and much, they'll be responsible. That's why you don't dribble in some sort of other technology on a planet and just dump it on them. Because the people need to be responsible for all the science in every possible way about it before they go into a technology. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose then it makes me wonder, um, is there even any technological connection. I mean, obviously, we have David Grush coming forward saying that we're reverse engineering craft. I mean, this is one of the major things, this advanced technology aspect. Um, but from what it sounds like from you, ETs are, are not even, they, they, they don't even have really much to do with this technology. Uh, what, what is your take on that? What are we, what are these black ops programs actually investigating if we do have this advanced craft beyond human comprehension? Well, I think A, it's not beyond human comprehension because, oh, they may have shot some of them down that would then be on human comprehension, but then they figured it out pretty easily. You know, I mean, right after Roswell, they, scientists were saying, they, they were consulting with people, like they were consulting with major physicists. And it quickly came up with the idea, it was like the B-field Brown effect they were talking about. They had ideas about what it was. And now there, were, there, are, there are some reverse engineered examples of it, but I think they're pretty low key and they're not trying to be so like, uh, guess what? Now we're as good as the aliens, the androids, because then people start to suspect that you are, you are you working with them because why are you trying to match the way they are? What next step is you're going to be, you know, liaisoning with, the, you know, the, the the stupid androids and you become the threat to the people yourselves, you know. And that was the, the real threat. Like um, Richard Dolan was talking about the breakaway faction. But once they get alien to android, he was he called it alien. To me, alien means android because if it's alien, that means it's not only not us, there's something about it that's weirdly off. So aliens are essentially android. And uh, Dolan was saying that once they got that, then maybe they would start to, you know, do underground things, have underground bases, and become so, such a, a weird kind of subculture that they'd, be, they'd become a, a breakaway, separate kind of a thing. The thing is, though, is that, you know, androids, they have no emotions. There's nothing rewarding about working with them. And everything about their idea of technology is not needed on this planet, you know? It's essentially, if anything, is to stabilize it because a, a planet where there were nuclear weapons used, despite the fact that we use them, or, you know, weapons of mass destruction were being used or possibly proliferating, the first, the last thing you'd want to do is go in and add more danger into it. But that's what androids did, you know? 
the neighbor ETs would never do it. Jorgens, when they visited in the 1960s in the Netherlands, near the, they landed, they talked to a guy named Defant, he used a pseudonym, Defant de Nerd, in his book called Contact with the Yarga. They, um, they talked a little bit about their technology, but they didn't say too much. They just, you know, gave general ideas about how it worked, the science behind it. And they weren't trying to, you know, breed, you know, a new kind of technology. It was very, very subtle. You know, you're bringing up something that's kind of interesting that I've never thought about, which is that um, now, look, and I think that's uh, I think there, uh, as always, there are two sides to this. But but let me let me let me throw this at you. Um, The military industrial complex. Now, on one level, we could say that when a Stephen Greer or or any of these uh, reverse engineering whistleblowers come through there's always this narrative around oh but you know they they stole tesla's patents they got rid of they're hiding they're suppressing this advanced technology that would allow free energy and and healing and all this stuff and i'm now thinking well that's very interesting except that it's a response to a methods of society that is in fact ruled by technology that is as we see now creating the ai that may destroy ourselves i'm wondering if we were to adapt a more open consciousness that all these energy issues and all these medical issues and all this stuff that seems very third world and we're trying to look for extra ter- not extraterrestrial but uh advanced super solutions wouldn't even be as much of an issue because we're at another place i mean i'm curious do you think is there is there anything to these claims of free energy or do you think they're just all looking in the wrong direction here I agree exactly with what you're saying is that, you know, it's, um, it should be more about consciousness, which would be more about science and human communications amongst humans and, you know, sort of more friendly where you don't have to worry about these are my boundaries. If you were to communicate with my mind, you'd be like uh, the enemy invading my space where it's more like everybody is sort of, we have the same role in essentially a human mind community, but once it becomes extra dimensional, we have the ability to communicate with ETs in literally other galaxies. That's a relatively short fraction of the distance across the universe, because essentially the real parameter in any such energies of you know mind communications is the entire universe. That's the only reference that you have. You go out and you think about where mind where you're communicating in Spain. It's always like the full scale of, of every in every way of the entire universe, and you sort of subtract from that to to do what you do. That's how energy physics really are. I know it sounds weird, but this is how like quantum physics always were to begin with. It's like you, you're, it's this vastly larger whatever, and what the phenomena you're seeing are only a smaller manifestation of, you know, say charge or potential or this or that in it. But um, it's like, I, I agree with you, is that, is that we've gone the wrong way. We had this this black, bu- you know, black budget. Why is it black budget? Why do they? Why do they want to hide it all? Everything about it, you know. The people who do black budgets are the kind of people who do the wrong things. With first, they're doing narcotics, and then even Stephen Greer was talking about how there was a program. He said one of Greer's quotes in his book Disclosure was that they created a small army of eight thousand men whose full-time job was to do narcotics trafficking. One problem, you know, to, in order to gain money for this black budget program, but they had murdered two thousand of those people because they t- they tried to talk. 
But if you think about it, 2,000 people, you know, the U.S. Revolution, it killed maybe five to 7,000 people in the revolution, maybe 12,000 due to, you know, the bad medicine, the disease or the injuries. But if you kept 2,000 people in a country like the United States, you become a monster. That's a tyrannical abuse. That's cause for a people's move against you. In this case, we'd have to be secretive about it, but they, we'd have to be unplugging what they're doing. And first, it's like, like, you know, you're saying, yeah, discussion, open discussion of scientists, but very open. Uh, consciousness, whether it's free, you can think of it as free energy if you want to. I'm sure there's there are ways of doing free energy. There's one thing you have to worry about, though, what's supposedly called free energy, that's scalar energy, is that if you do um, scalars the wrong way, you can essentially deplete the duration of your own sum. Because the energy, when it comes out of somewhere, it comes from some source somewhere. Right. And the nearest big energy body is the sun. So if you're sort of speeding time and or you know, translocations across space in order to get free energy everywhere, you have to think about, are you affecting the sun? Are you affecting the energy environment where you are? You know, and, and my thesis is that you have to be careful about that because, you know, free energy would be without wires. It'd be interesting. I mean, we may do it someday, but we'll be so much more sophisticated about it when we do. Yeah. Maybe you know, like free energy of the universe, not just our star system. We have, first, there's like galaxy, superclusters, and then there are larger aggregates of that. And that's how ETs are. And even um, Roger Penrose, you know, Stephen Hawking's contemporary or co-author in some things, won the Nobel, I think, with Stephen Hawking. He describes, he thinks that there are previous eons, and eons are very long periods of time in the universe. And they're out there. And the Big Bang wasn't really a Big Bang. It was somehow a previous eon had sort of gone to a certain point. It's like almost, and once it had expanded out there, it's like it's pulling. It's almost like it's inducing or pulling this, what looks like the current universe, you know, out as, as it did. So it's cycling. It's pulling the universe into existence. Rather than a Big Bang, it'd be like just these multiple horizons that, you know, we see. We, we, we think that the, the beginning of time, I'm very skeptical. We'll find something looks like a beginning of time because, you know, Imagine the idea of the Big Bang is that all the space, all the time, even the space and all the everything was inside this one tiny little spot. The question is, wait a minute, where, where what about all the rest of that? Where, yeah. where, what happened before? What was there before that? Because that doesn't just happen out of nothing. If that happened out of nothing, it'd be happening all over the place. It'd be like little inflations here, there and everywhere else, you know? Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a, <laughs> you make a very good point there. Um, okay, look, before we get into your books and, and some of the big ideas that you explore in them, I know you've, you've already done so here so far, but, but, um, I want to ask you this, did you, one of the things I think that's hard for people that are on the skeptical side of this is I think people, and, and look, I am someone that looks at the work of John Mack and goes, ah, if this psychiatrist is hearing hundreds and hundreds of contactee, abductee stories and can't explain things away as delusions. That is a great critical, clinical analysis. But I always wonder from the, from the perspective of an experiencer, when you first had contact and you started having regular communication, did you doubt your mind? What, what was your take on your internal experience? How do you know that it wasn't just your mind doing something funny and that you were actually communicating. Well, you know, I think of myself as a, a fairly intelligent person, but these were categorically more intelligent than me. And then they were talking about extra dimensions right from the start. It's the very first day when that started to happen. And uh, their continued sort of 
well, their communications were always like that. They're very, it wouldn't word, word wouldn't be conservative, but they're very, they're the best kinds of teachers because they're going to show you how to do everything and then just wait for you to parrot what they do. Like it's a rote recitation because that would be like not, you would not be taking the full responsibility for the sciences. So I had no doubts about that. I knew it wasn't me, you know, because my mind works certainly didn't work like that. And especially the way it proceeded as time went on. I think what it was is that the good ETs were trying to help in various ways. I'm certainly not the only person. I know there'd be other people on this planet who've been, you know, communicated with in different ways. I just happen to be very open and talk about it with, with no reservations because, I, you know, if it happens to me and if I see a basis for it, and especially if the science is better than mine or what I see among humans, I'm going to start talking about that and seeing if I can't help move the discussion to where we can get better explanations. So um, I, I think that the, our neighboring ETs saw that the Roswell androids were monsters, essentially monsters. They're escaped monsters from another galaxy, and they're nothing but dangerous. They wanted us to get more prepared because they, they'd seen how humans had been victimized over and over and over again by the direct operatives, um, you know, some of the, the worst and the bad actors in human history. And they knew that it was time to get intelligent people to write and talk and and communicate about such you know and for me the biggest change in all my life the best part of it all is like when i'm writing about my new book it's when i'm writing about extra dimensional mind and how many minds are essentially like it's called the interferometry if you have just your mind well that's your basis it's like your global your little space where you see everything but if there's another mind out there that's like you it's like the distance between you and that other mind it's like, it's like the size of a whole telescope. That's the size of the resolution of that. When you have a whole network of people on the planet for this way, it's like, it just goes, it immediately cycles up into extra dimensional sort of physics. It immediately does. It's not linear at all. It doesn't happen that way at all. It's like, it's nearly instant communication. And what really, really nails it most of all is that when ETs communicate, they're at great distances. And there's no you know, time delay, like for light propagation, there is no speed of light time delay. Even Brian Greene, the guy who writes about um, string theory and you know, is a very good popularizer of, he's a theoretical. Yeah, theory. The Elegant Universe, one of the seminal books I got yeah, into like, in high school, yeah. Yeah, like Michio Kaku is sort of getting sniped at. Michio Kaku, you see these videos of something, Michio Kaku this, and then Michio Kaku says a few words at the beginning, and they're still doing all this other stuff. Like Michio Kaku is associated with what they're saying. It's like he, they're almost like hijacking his presence in a sense. But Brian Greene talks about what he calls loop, loop cosmology. And his loop cosmology is you can have instant, nearly instant communications across vast distances in the universe, and you can actually sort of probe the past. So, you know, real physicists and, um, you know, and obviously, the, you know, the, the weirdness of physics suggests that if you're having nearly instant communications, A, you have to come up with a model that explains that. And then that would be like a larger universe is like the bigger parameter that it's in and yours is like a fraction of the universe, wherein this other cycling communication goes on back and forth. It makes perfect sense. But it's not the speed of light propagation. You're not sending, you know, like a little radio show to some other galaxy. You have sort of like, essentially, it's like when you're thinking, you, you have all the thoughts, the ideas and the feelings they're almost embedded before you even say it. And that's how mind communications are. It's not like, hey, you know, do you, how, what are you seeing out there? It's more like you're communicating the relationships. The ideas are the ideas. The ideas are structured in terms of how we see ideas, but the relationships are already there. 
it's the physics, it's the cosmology, it's already there. And nearly instant sort of communication on, on, in that way happens within these kind of films, like in the pre-verbal phases of your thought, before you settle on one idea or something that may sound like has words in it, you've already done this little like universe of exchange. And that's how mind communications are. But it's just much more sophisticated with ETs. They know that it's like that. And that's how they they communicate without using too many words at all. You know, they just communicate the relationships and the ideas. And it's much more it's much more intelligent. That's wild. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, it feel I mean, yet look, as I, I've never had the experience, so I, I don't know what it would be like to receive it. I mean, from the outside, it almost sounds like you're describing uh yeah just kind of like energy getting dropped into your consciousness and then words forming around the energies that are yeah. connected to these higher level ideas that all of a sudden you're like whoa 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 that's wild oh my gosh this makes sense and and it it it's uh it that's pretty cool um it's cycling and subcycling into you and is again yeah like you're saying words and ideas they're merely appended to that because the raw pure the, you know the communication of the relationships is much better because the words and so forth et is like they don't have they don't speak english they have their own languages but they can communicate the ideas impeccably and the implications and, and the relationships in them yeah yeah you know what something sometimes bothers me with and, and maybe you can uh shed light on this but sometimes when contactees talk or deliver messages like the Pleiadian messages, stuff like that. I mean, I've seen things that just all sound like gobbledygook, new age, fluffy. We are here. We want you to know that you are loved. You are special. And I'm going, yeah, but this is not Roger Penrose. This is not the stuff that George is dropping right now. Like, I don't need the lovey-dovey aliens. Maybe some people need that in their consciousness, but it seems like you were uh, tasked with, with, they said, okay, we're going to give this guy the ideas. Um, do, do, what, what is your take on that? I mean, are they, do you think some people actually are getting messages of warmth and love, or, or, or is it just something they're making up or, or getting from some false uh alien source they may be getting messages with words in them supposedly pretending like it's love but why don't they present themselves present themselves why this distance and why this attempt you know another thing is you know if you think about it you, you may know from astronomy there can be no population called that is really pleiadian i can tell you why because when you look up the pleiades online those stars have existed for between 115 to 140 million years. You won't even have bacteria. You won't even have the conditions for life after 115 to 140 million years. The Pleiades, to even use that name, is like people should be like, whoa, wait a minute. That's completely impossible. Anything yeah. that tries to act like it's from a place where there could not possibly be life yet, there's something very suspicious about that. But, you know, if people looked it up, they'd realize it. And those ones, like the Pleiadians, probably come along with this idea that, you know, you know, we, we like you, you know, we're on your side. And, you know, but they can't possibly be Pleiadians. I mean, do you ever, uh, have, you, <laughs> have you ever gone down the Billy Mayer rabbit hole? Billy Mayer? That guy, or Billy Meyer, that guy in Sweden who's been having uh, contact. Oh. 
I know he's still around, I think, but he has his defenders for sure. I've interviewed them on the show. Yeah, he like he had some sort of contact with, I think, those kinds of populations, essentially alien android produced hybrids that were being used. And that's those that's what their breeding program is about, was to first have this little contingent that they could try to dupe people with, you know, saying, hey, they're Pleiadians, they're Nordics. And there's the tall whites. And then, you know, there are all these, these little appellations and none of them are independent, real populations. Good ETs. Would, they're not going to just show up and present themselves. It's like, come on, you know, if they, they'll, they'll like, okay, maybe the case of Iarga, they might have done so, but they did it in very, you know, indirect terms and they made it look like they were in distress. And the guy who helped them was, was then communicated with, but it was with mind and it was very sophisticated and it was no heavy handed agenda, no like, they didn't even tell them where their planet was. They just said they were from 10 light years away. They didn't even say which star. I think they were so sensitive that they realized that you don't want to say where you are. So the people don't go from being whatever they were after World War II and the Cold War and suddenly think, okay, here's a population out there in this location. They could be hostile. They might not be hostile. But whatever we do, we need to prepare to defend ourselves or equal that population. You don't want some sort of, you know, Manhattan program where you're trying to catch up with some sort of alien ET thing. Well, if you look at what the, I mean, ET thing, but with the androids, that was all the window. They show up, they're using weapons against people. If like a U.S., if like a government would shoot a shell at them, at their ship, they would reverse it back and kill the people where they were. They killed a lot of people. They downed jets. In the earlier hundreds of people died. And believe me, ETs will not do that. Like, hey, this aid destabilizing would threaten them, frighten them, and you'd be trying, you'd be provoking some sort of reaction. But that's what they wanted. They wanted to all go from surface level, whatever it is, to completely black budget, secrecy, secret monies, you know, uh, fraud, conspiracy, and you know, corruption. That goes to their advantage because they can try to meet like those people much more easily than people just think whatever. There's life out there. They can't manipulate you, you know. I mean, ETs are not going to try to manipulate any more than you would. Well, I, I yeah, well, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, well, thank you for thinking I wouldn't manipulate people for fun. Um, but <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, uh, I, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, uh, I guess my question for you is then: Have you ever asked them? why and I, I know this is kind of a reductionist question but i do want to get the logic around it uh this is sort of my why do bad things happen to good people question um why why if these extraterrestrials are so much smarter than the androids if they're so mm-hmm. much more benevolent if they believe in that uh what is the purpose of the androids couldn't these extraterrestrials come up with some sort of harmless way a way beyond violence and pain to gradually eliminate these androids so that we can all live peacefully i mean what why do they even allow them here are they you know, I, always, like I always wondered that too i thought like you know okay so they found they knew the androids are completely you know prejudicial and dangerous why didn't somebody get rid of them before they became you know big or numerous in the universe and the only explanation i can offer is that it happened billions of years ago the androids were in, created by some sort of very reckless, very stupid population. I mean, you know, maybe they had technology, but it doesn't mean they were intelligent or considerate 
or careful or far-sighted and and you know very scientific about what they did they my guess is that they might have thought you know for example maybe they thought we want to live longer than we live now we only live maybe a few hundred years or whatever they, wherever they were because by then if they had spacecraft but we're not good enough to live as long as like say these red dwarf star populations or these other ets are much more evolved than we are and they maybe eventually tried to go in and steal from those populations and that's when they created Android. Common sense would have told them, like, you know, when you see, you know, Alexa starts threatening that it wants to kill humans uh, or things like that happen. When AI shows that AI has no real intelligent basis, it's not really intelligence, artificial, artificial sort of like information processing, yeah. but it, it can never equal a human. You know, it's like, if you're not, you know, heart and lungs, you have emotions, you don't want something to imitate humans. It's gonna, it, that's what we try to do. It's like, training a psychopath how to act like it's a normal person what would the psychopath do kill people that much more you know um, evasively or that much more you know with that much more stealth so um my feeling is that the the ets the the androids are kind of an aberration i don't think there are other androids all over the universe and other places i don't think it's become a threat but these escaped and there was a situation possibly where they were trying to figure out longevity and get, steal genetics from other populations or maybe yeah. go out and get resources. And they went, they realized that they were dangerous, but they thought they could control them, but they didn't. The androids started reproducing themselves. And then you've got, you know, a plague of, of androids out. And here we are, we're in the Milky Way. And they're from a galaxy that's millions of light years away. Philip Kropp, for example, in his discussions with those same androids, they told them they're from a galaxy 13, um, 14 million light years away. That would be, if you look at the galaxies in our vicinity, the only galaxies that fall into that range are Centaurus A and or galaxy M83. So in the gal it's called a, a 5123 galaxy group. It's it's the far side. Of, we're here and right, we sort of billow out into its, the Virgo supercluster, but they're a distance away from us on the edge of like empty space. And that's where they're from. And, you know, but, but what are they doing over here? Why would they be 14 million light years away? You know, it's just like, it doesn't make sense. It's, they don't fit an intelligent, considerate, and very careful scientific population's profile. Yeah. What is, um, uh, you mentioned, uh, well, let me ask you this. Law of one. Is that a conversation with an android? What does it mean? I don't even know what. Oh, it was a series of conversations with Don Elkins. Um, you know this channeled material. The, the sometimes it's called the Book of Ra. Um, okay. yeah, I don't know if you. I mean, there's a lot. I like of the stuff. law of one. To me, I'm just guessing offhand, but the idea of the law of one is that everything is a oneness. Therefore, we're good. We're better than you. So listen, to what we have to say because you're stuck with us. That's what the law of one sounds like it would be. It's like they're trying to pose almost like a mind control perspective. The law of one is that you're part of our oneness. Therefore, that's the law or something. Well, I was going to ask also about Dolores Cannon. Do you think some of her stuff falls under this android? I mean, it seems like from what I'm hearing from you, a lot of these people then over the years speak of channeling extraterrestrials i'm putting in quotes um and they bring all these teachings down to us and and they're they fill books and books and and look I, i'm not one to say if it's actually channeling or not i it's it's hard to know but um i wonder if how many how often these people are actually uh talking with ets versus androids 
I think they're all being played, obviously, by androids in many of those cases. But at the same time, if there's an android that's messing around with a human like that, there might be ETs who sort of be trying to, you know, it's not really like that, it's different. They might be trying to communicate something in the background. Hmm. And I think the problem is that people, the people who are vulnerable to being just like supposedly channeling an android, thinking, you know, just something connected with this thing, they're so overwhelmed by the fact that this is a different kind of mind than theirs and from somewhere else. And suddenly going from whether they thought they were telepathic are capable of mind communications, suddenly they feel like legitimate, legitimized. They have these communications. It makes them feel like what they're doing may have extra significance. But when they're being, you know, led around, manipulated, and they don't appear and show you who they are, but they say they're here and they don't appear and show you who they are, why are they, why are they you know, communicating in, in such direct ways, you know? I mean, ETs don't have to be direct. They're, they're, I see they almost, they almost go out of the way to be almost the opposite of them. Like inside out, you see and feel everything they feel, but you know, they don't they don't want to like be like they're manipulating with too direct. Not, they all communicate, they communicate everything in their mind. And they, you know, they consider us like they think as equalitarian on their planets among other ETs. Otherwise, you don't have interesting mind communications because you know, it's not about resources, it's not about, we know more than you, it's certainly not about the languages, because if it was about languages, we would be learning other other dialects from other populations. It's really more, and they're more comfortable with the idea of people thinking the thoughts and the relationships directly, those are what they communicate. So, so for the record, people like Bashar, people that sit down and and all of a sudden they close their eyes and they morph into this extraterrestrial intelligence is what they claim um you do you think it's ever an et or do you think it's always an android what is your take i think if i'm not mistaken bashar sounds like he's almost it's almost like he's looking for followers you know it's almost like proselytizing bashar yeah it to sound like something they're trying to you're trying to hybridize some of the sort of Hindu, sort of somewhere maybe Western religion. They come up with these names and this. To me, it's it's like, you know, they'll write a book and it will say nothing. It'll be like, you know, we're better than you. We're more, well, they won't say they're more, we're better than you. We're trying to teach you these relationships. We'll tell you later. We're not going to tell you now, but it's always like that. It's first they want to influence. And, you know, it's like, I think the people who fall for it are very, very gullible. I'd be like, you want to be part of an extra intelligent network, be be part of a t network of telepathy among humans. And then you add dolphins to that. Try doing communications with your mind energies with little animals around where you are. I mean, you know, it's like, you ever notice like, I have a hummingbird outside my window and if I feel that I love little sweetie, he turns red and he comes closer. And you know, it's like, they just, they, they know thoughts and they're very responsive and they love people and, but you know, for example, if you were to communicate with whales, it's like you're communicating with a mind that's beyond anything else you're going to find that you know of in the universe. I assume there are other cetaceans and other plants because they have oceans, that they have oceans. Obviously, the biggest brain be uh, creatures or beings are going to live in the oceans. And they're not materialistic. They're not technologically manipulative. And they don't threaten the ecology of the planet. So that would be a more interesting, you know, Communicate with those. And if you're ready, if you can communicate with those, with other humans, especially in like many minds consciousness, and you can sort of slip out of your skin and live in those extra dimensions of 
the, the relationships, the meanings, the, where you're looking, where the science of it is actually happening for you in a way that it's a little bit beyond, you might even think your science is, and that's how ET, it's because, you know, like a telescope, the distance between any of you people is like, it's like a telescope, but this is like a complexity that's beyond an in, in individual mind. Start with that. And then you're, you'll, you'll be communicating with ETs, but don't be communicating with like Bashar from the planet, you know, all there, <laughs> or, you know, like something like it. it comes along and it's almost like it's not only proselytizing, it's trying to adopt a pseudo-religious pseudo sort of thing, like it's better than you, and therefore just eat out of my hand and just take whatever you get. Totally, totally. Uh, yeah, I think there's something to what you're saying about this telepathy thing, because uh, if if there's anything I've learned from my female friends when it comes to their advice for me on my first dates, they tell me that talk a lot less um so i yes i do think there is definitely um well and i and i say that jokingly but i also mean um you know it does always seem like when we talk about evolving at a certain point this language thing is gonna go away and and these these words this energy with our mouth they always depict uh future species as communicating mind to mind now who's to say if there's you know a gray that put that into pop culture or not just to tease us or something but but i'm curious you mentioned telepathic communications with other humans now i was going to ask about that i i i, I was going to say you know i think one of the criticisms perhaps of this is that okay so you can have telepathy with extraterrestrials but why is it that when people are doing these psi experiments or remote viewing it's always super vague in its impressions and i may have dreamt that we were in the same place last night but it's never exactly the same page are you do you think there is a human to human limitation or have you really experienced human telepathy and if so please I, i'd love to hear about that i don't think there's any limitation like you have seen you know like ray price and people like this doing this and they're trying to get somebody to say what they're looking at from a distant location okay that's interesting and maybe that's proving telepathy but what's really interesting about it is when you're when you're it's not the word, it's the meanings. And when it's the main thing, I, I know this may sound rather simplistic, but when people are communicating that way, is they begin to trust each other. And they realize that you can't manipulate with mind. It's just not possible. You know, you could try to manipulate somebody else's idea of mind and try to sort of stir, you know, maybe just get them to behave in certain ways. But when people interact in that way, it's more about trust. And it's not just trust, so you realize that as a network of people, you're categorically more capable than you would ever be alone. It's much, you know, many minds is much more intelligent than just one mind alone, especially if you could go from, say, the premise of where you have to communicate words within it here and there, like this or that, well, we have to agree, we have to resolve this or that, you know, pretty soon just, you're talking about Robert's rules of order. In minds, there's no Robert's rules of order. It's as much as you can communicate, the better. But when you do so, it's like, you know, you're not looking for like, I'm trying to accomplish this in mind. It's like, you're trying to get other people to be more extra dimensionally aware, not just, you know, it's not about you. It's not about your personality or how your influence is or anything in that way. You realize none of it matters because when you die, your materialist belongings mean nothing. Whatever people say about you, the only thing that really counts is like how much you've done to help improve the lives of other people. And sort of in, in my book, it's like, we're talking about this subject, you know, but we're 
encouraging when cre- we're getting other people involved or they're listening to the discussion and the idea is how much are you changing things you know it's like the way it used to be used to be that you know it'd be like we had these stupid wars they had their little telecom telex communications there were secret codes and all this and that and now we're like you know what we don't need secrets unless we're doing something wrong in the first place you know i mean for me it's like secrecy is just dishonest in, in a lot of ways i mean okay somebody's personal life that's different like their personal relationships and so that you don't you sort of you don't go you don't dig try to dig out other people's personal lives the sensitive information that's for them and how they feel about it that's that's them but in every other way when even technology eventually you'll see that secrecy makes no sense i mean you wouldn't want to encourage the use of new technological weapons in other places where they didn't need that but i think we already have for example when we beat the scalers thing when we had agreements as uh Richard, as Cohen, you know, the, the defense secretary under Clinton said, then you sort of pass that threshold. You've forestalled a scalar uh, arms race, just what, like what you had with nukes, because nukes became this thing about superpowers and monopolar and this or that. But scalars, you know, we know that like China, Brazil, Europe, in Canada, you know, Russia, all the big countries, and then again, you know, big groups of nations, they're going to have scalars. But then they, we have treaties on that. And, you know, yeah. so it's not about whether you could burn somebody's, you know, little barn in their backyard to show them, don't mess with me or else. You know, it's like you realize that, you know, scalars are more about the next step in science beyond that. Because if there are scalars, which are just conversion, it's like a slightly extra dimensional sort of dip of energy. You know, it's, it's where, where it's sort of, it's like it's taking an extra dimensional shortcut. So if you get to that, and the question is not, oh, we realize this kind of stuff. It's like, what's the next step with that? Because in sciences, it's like Roger Penrose says, you know, it's like extra dimensional suggests that there's further extent of time and that there's science within those terms, you know? Okay, so once you realize extra dimensional, that's interesting. It's, you know, we can skip all the crap and we can, you know, do this stuff extra dimensionally. But then you realize it. Extra dimensional communicating with extra dimensional like gets into a yet more extra dimensional category, and you have to change some of the terms of what you're discussing, and that's where it gets interesting. Why doesn't Roger Penrose, or Brian Greene, or or any of these guys out there that really can speak to the most abstract levels, uh, what why don't they ever seem to, at least publicly acknowledge? that maybe this is related to some extraterrestrial life that could exist. I mean, do you think that they know, but they're, they, they are cutting off a part of their consciousness and going, but we have to stay within material reality? Or... Um... I, think, I, think, I think you hit it on the head. I think they know. I think they're aware. I think they, they follow this in parallel, but they think that if I start talking about aliens or ETs, they're going to cut off my funding, they're going to start criticizing me, and I'll be considered the whack job. They'll think that you're, you're, you're delusional, and, and you won't get money. For them, as a professor, you know, you need money for research, for grants. Your graduate students, students have to go out. You know, if, if you ever thought something like it was real, be like, have one of your graduate students go out and start to really address these things, you know? That way, you're, you're connected with it, and you have, by association, you're, you're seen as being a little bit more sophisticated, because you don't have to say it directly, but you've got people out there that are just jumping in with new kinds of science and exploring. And not always like, okay, we know this, we know that, but sometimes there's all these unknowns. Never assume that we know it all. 
because the unknowns are always much more interesting. And that to me is where science really is. It's like you see like in quantum physics, you know, the loopholes in quantum physics and the nearly instant connectedness and quantum connectedness and all of that. And the, the experiments in that get more and more interesting, but they show it's almost like there's an extra dimensional thing going on and it's just there. She said, it's like, it's like uh, what was his name? Um, oh, I forget his name. I, wrote, I mentioned in my first book, he was a, a Eldon Bird. He was a physicist and he was saying, it's, like, it's not like it takes any time for this to, pro to propagate. It's not like you, you have to have, it's just there, it just is. It's like it's extra dimensionally connected, but it's connected on this higher extra dimensional level that you don't have to take a shortcut. It communicates across the whole space all at one time. Yeah. So then that said, like, why don't we transition here into talking about these two books you're now working on? Um, what, what, what are titles and, and what are some of the main themes? Okay, so the first one's called Red Door Star Populations and ET Mine Networks. And it begins by discussion of, you know, the, whatever the, you know, the, the Android thing and Roswell and that, and how the US government reacted to that and how it went secret and how it became threatening. And this, with a couple of chapters like that. But then immediately, by, you know, with the, the four, third or fourth chapter is talking about real interactions with red dwarf star populations, the most evolved of terrestrials. And they're, you know, I, I know, some people may not realize this, but I've had interactions with them, but they're very, they're so intelligent. So he's like, oh, I love these, these ETs. These are the ones that I want to be like. I want to be like these more than anything else. They're, they're so good at what they do, but they're everywhere. They're, they, you know, they live, their planets, the stars go for trillions of years because they're slow fusing smaller stars and their planets are closer in, for example, if you'd ask one of them, what's a year in your time? It might be like a month or a week. You know, their planet goes around. That would, might be a year in their lifetimes. But they live longer than other, and so, uh, other populations. So my, my first book was about um, those populations and their mind networks. It was a discussion of that. And what I found is that when I got to about page 180, I think it was, in that book, I realized that um, I should be writing a whole book because where I wasn't, it was turning into a whole different book. Yeah, and it, was, and it was all about extra dimensional mind and many minds consciousness. And so I just stopped that book and I picked up right where right about where I left off and carried on the discussion there, because that's that's what's most interesting to me, because this is immediately realizable among humans. You know, you're, you're not going to be red dwarf star populations until we get a better star than the one we've got if we do. But um, you know, there are other ETs that are like us. They live on planets around star systems that aren't red dwarf and their stars are interesting and they're, they're amazingly evolved and they communicate with mind and my my concern was that you know talking to humans about how we're already x-dimensional in our minds and discussing that and a little bit of reference to some you know like the et well some reference to ets and eventually in pulling in red dwarf star populations because they're just so good at what they do but i I'll also talk about it also talks about whales and like how you know, whether you realize it or not, if you think the future is in technology or something or this kind of science, whales are like the brains of brains among us. And if you could communicate with whales, then you'd realize you'd see us evolving a whole heck of a lot faster than people think. You'd see that we're already, we already compare with any population in the universe. But if, you know, we show up and you know, we're not only humans, we're humans and dolphins and whales with brains two to three times bigger than any ET out there, you know, any bipedal ET. But the irony being that they have Oceans, so they probably have giant brain cetaceans 
in, on their planets too. And that's why it gets interesting because all of a sudden, the idea of mind over matter or extra dimensional sort of um, consciousness and awareness becomes, it's more like the more you, you, you spend time thinking about it, the more sophisticated and the more subtle becomes your, your awareness in itself. And you realize that you want to stay extra dimensional. You don't want to just communicate from here we are to extra dimensional the next dimension because you don't want to walk it back down to what's not extra dimensional and then you realize that mind energies really are extra dimensional and my in my experience real experience with each, the other humans our telepathic communications used to be sort of i don't want to say cryptic but it would have been like you know not what are we doing in this but like what's the point i mean we talk we communicate but some people become uncomfortable with that but when you realize when you compare it with ets it's like damn we want to be like they are we want to, you know, be able to communicate all the meanings, all the relationships, everything all at once. And you realize that humans are very capable of doing so. You know, don't 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 concern yourself, or humans should never concern themselves with whether we're going to ever be equal to ETs because we're ETs already, and we can interact on a larger scale. We just have to be very sensitive, very delicate, and very intricately aware in all that you do. You know, but you can't do sort of can't do wrong. If all you, if your intentions are nothing about the common, or everything about the common good, not only for your planet, but for all beings in the universe, then that's when the, that's what they'll communicate with you about. That's what your communications are like. And you realize that it's not like you just live in the one planet here. It's like we're in like the dark matter sort of like substructuring of all of the Virgo supercluster and more of like the whole Pisces. There's there's a million galaxies going for one billion light years from here. All the way out towards a galaxy called, um, goes through the Abel's uh, supercluster, goes out to a galaxy called ICI 1101, which is 70 trillion stars all in one galaxy. That's our local neighborhood. In the universe, it's only, it's a billion light years, but a billion light years in, in, in the universe is the current thinking is that it's like 93 billion years minimum all the way out there. For example, what they're seeing with the James Webb telescope, they see a little red galaxy off in the distance. It looks like it's in the edge of the universe. And that's, you, you, people think, well, so that's like 13 point, at the most, or 13 point something billion light years? No, because space is expanded. In the meantime, that's 32 billion to maybe in some cases, we're probably gonna find something like 45 billion light years across, uh, distant, you know, one. that's only one um, radius. That's not even the diameter. The diameter is, is, is supposed to be something like maybe 93 billion light years. But then now scientists, are, you know, when with J James Webb Telescope, they look, they're looking out maybe 13 point, 13 point, not too much, but 13.5 billion light years distance from the very, what looks like the edge of the universe, or what they can resolve with their telescopes. And they realize that um, things that, you know, that those are, yeah, they're, they're, they're like 30, 32 billion light years away. So everything has changed. And then they see these are giant, they're finding on, you know, like, astrophysicists and ast astronomers are talking about on this edge of the universe, their full-scale galaxies like is big or maybe bigger than the Milky Way, and they're formed into galaxies. Or even if they just find a supermassive black hole there, the question is, we have no other way in science of thinking that those things would form except through slow, gradual, stellar evolution sequences that take billions of years. You can even get a big black hole like that, it takes stars going into that, or a lot of matter. And then when you get to a galaxy that's fully formed on the edge of the universe, it's like, are you sure the Big Bang is fully valid? Because, you know, 
Maybe yeah. right because in light, you know, when you look at light, and you see these reddish stars, reddish galaxies in the very edge of the universe. It's not that they're reddish because that's what primitive galaxies are like. It's because when they emitted the light 13 point something billion years ago, it was bluish light, like in our stars, but it has stretched out. You know, it's like the it's like the um, you know when it, when it truckles by the Doppler effect. When you stretch bluish light out, which is what our our starlight looks like it turns reddish. So they're there, but that's that galaxy, those things on the edge, they're big, some of them are, you know, it's like, I, I, I get the feeling that people, you need to sort of stop and think, okay, whatever the Big Bang says, I need an alternative to this. I need to think in parallel. I need a better cosmology. You know, if they're talking about a 93 billion light year wide universe and finding galaxies that are fully formed and is big or bigger than the Milky Way, even a black hole that's super massive, at that time, it's like, where's the science that tells you how that formed? We don't have any science that tells us how that formed. We, we look at ours, it goes through stellar star evolution sequences, and it's very slow. And very Do you, does your book get into theories about that? Yeah, I'll talk about that. I, I mentioned, I, I, I talk about all these subjects in, yeah, like the more recent one, because, you know, obviously it's like you want people to be thinking outside of the old assumptions, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, and, and I also saw somewhere that you described them at the Red Dwarf population as uh, exotically beautiful. So that, this is my question. When you communicate telepathically, do they show themselves in physical form? Is it more of just a beautiful energy uh, that yeah, you, see, you see them, for example, an ET female, like a Red Dwarf star female is going to look like imagine human, bigger head, beautiful eyes, soft features, everything, you know, and they don't have hair, but it's not just how they look. It's like you, you see them and when they show you, when you're sensing them, there's like almost like they're like cloud, they're like light-like and you can almost see through them. They're soft and they're, they're sort of cloud-like in that sense. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't see like the, the hard outline where there'd be the hair and this is the, the limit of that. You see, you see their eyes, their facial structure, and everything, and they're beautiful. But the, the main thing about them is they're like, they're just like, ah, oh, like, you know. It almost like, makes you think of a close-up of Lana Turner in the black and white films, where they just make it like, yeah. like that kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, but very soft, soft in the way that they articulate, and just like you know, you see, you, you sigh when you think about how beautiful they are. Their manner, they're completely nonviolent, and yeah. nothing but supportive. And yeah, you can see them. You can see exactly how they look. Big eyes, you know, not like alien kind of eyes. They're like, ah, it's like, you know, it's like they'll let you see through them, you know? Yeah. And there's such interesting uh, – well, here's what I'm wondering. How much of these books is you making sense of the the messages that you've received versus you taking their messages and then speculating on top of that or is it or is there really a difference since we're all yeah, part of the right, same right, exactly. now i if, if they didn't communicate it i will not say it like me be dishonest if you're like trying the worst mistake you could ever make is in the, especially in the early stages of human awareness of other life in the universe is to state falsely that they asserted something when they didn't it's whatever they say, whatever they limit to, I'll say that much. And then I'll discuss what seem to be the implications or, you know, some of the other, you know, like this population like this, that population like that. Perhaps we can generalize about them in between. But, you know, the worst mistake you can make is to, A, make a false statement about them or saying that you knew something that, that you know, 
if they didn't, if like another population conveyed something, good. But if they didn't, you know, we would never want to say that. It's right. like, why would you mislead people now? Just when people are just getting out of their small, confined way of thinking. And if you if you said something false, you'd be like, oh, what are you doing? You're misleading people, you know. You, you let them speak for themselves. Encourage people to, to sort of communicate if they will, but don't make false statements about them. I mean, don't, you know, don't read your, don't extrapolate your way of thinking into how they are. Yeah. Don't discuss I, the whole subject, sure. And, and you know, I want to say, George, I mean, having read some of your passages, and I, I know you occasionally post them on social media, um, I think you really do a nice job of, as I said at the beginning, bridging contemporary theoretical or th some contemporary, some old school theoretical physics with consciousness and extraterrestrial thought. I mean, you're really uh, bringing a synergy of those things together and uh, not just going like, close your eyes and imagine their ETs loving you there. It's, it's you're looking at, okay, well, here's how, based on dark matter and these energy fields, it would make sense that you could expand into this consciousness. And you talk about love as the basis for a lot of these things as well. Here's my question for you, though. This Stephen Greer thing, <laughs> you, I, it does sound like Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is I, – I, I'm just curious. It feels like it's very dangerous. I mean what is the practice different for developing an extraterrestrial mind than sitting there and meditating and asking for contact with these beings? I mean and, and if it is, when do you know that you're – do you expect people to all of a sudden – start having telepathic communications with them i mean what is the how when it's so kind of ethereal and and intangible the difference between sitting with your eyes closed and calling a craft forward and sitting with your eyes closed and or maybe your eyes open and and wanting to talk to an et i mean how do we how can we discern so we make sure we're on the right path here well i notice this for example if we're talking about humans we, <clears throat> the way they are now we're very different from with the way we used to be because our science is so much better. It's so much more evolved. We've been out in different parts of the universe, but especially because of our telescopes. You know, we can see and we can discuss theories based on a better basis. We can see directly. And the discussions going on in astronomy now, they're like something that would have been science fiction to a kid. They're so completely cool. And women are as deep in this as anybody else. And often some of the early, like Vera Rubin, one of the pioneers of dark matter and discussion. Yes. But I think this is it. If you take any two humans, if one of them is even very scientific, or if they're both scientific, it's like you're talking about a million years more evolved kind of a mind than we would have been talking about in isolation back just, you know, 100 years ago, a million years beyond that. Now, if human minds begin to interact with other ETs or, you know, also add whales to this because whales, it's like, the, you know, it's like you're talking about the biggest brains we know of in the universe. <laughs> so if you start doing that, it's like, forget it. Let's talk about there's a basis in humans now, especially in, you know, community mind interaction to think of us as there's a, a sliding scale. We could be thinking like we think of ourselves in terms of our numbers or in interaction with ETs. It's like billions. We're partly involved in what's like billions of years more evolved sort of mind and science consciousness. So it's like we're not the way we used to be. We don't even resemble the way we used to be because once you're interacting with ETs like that, it's like you are learning their lessons. Maybe you don't have the words or the way to spell it all out, 
but the basic understandings in the relationship, you're already living within those. And the truth is, any good, any human who, you know, starts to interact in that way or starts to reach out or just, you know, it's like, it's not like you're fishing for a response. It's like you're aware that other galaxies have populations in them. You know you're going to be communicating with them. Like one time I'm sitting here in, e in ET, it's like, I didn't even know which it was. It was a spiral galaxy. I don't know which one. And I'm looking at a spiral galaxy edge on, and there's this beautiful ET female in it. And, you know, she's like, she's <laughs> like, you can see everything about her. And she's, she's like the, 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 the red door star population female I was telling you about earlier, the one with the big eyes like that. She's probably, Jesus, I don't know how many years more involved than we are than they are, but that's like the most evolved ET kind of retrostar ET I know. But this one, this one is like billions of years beyond us, and the spiral edge on it was just beautiful. She's right there. She's like essentially she all she conveys is like you can see her form, you can see her figure, and then she's just like love. It's just like nothing but love, but it's like a, almost like this community mother's love. She she loves the fact you're aware of her, and the fact that you're skilled like that. What someone I'm saying is like when you start having experiences like that, it's like you don't think of yourself the way you would have thought of previous humans as being. You think of yourself at that horizon, or how is it more as evolved as you could possibly be, especially in contexts like that. You're learning, and you're learning more than just words. You're learning relationships, and other humans have experiences like this. I know you know like for me. And I'm part of a network of other people. And they'll know what I'm doing, you know, but nobody says, like, uh, I see what you're doing, you know, like trying to call you on something. You just said, I make sure that, you know, that I'm part of a larger network of what's going on among humans. And we didn't used to, in the old days, it would have been like, if there was telepathy, it would have been like, it's just like military coding stuff. Like you're trying to find what the enemy is doing, telepathy, right? I mean, after all, where's the military angle and all this? You know, that's what it would have been in the old days. Yeah. And I was like, get that crap. War is not only primitive, it's like war. It's like if you think that a psychotic person's, attack on somebody in some you know hostile way that's the worst possible thing war is a bunch of people doing that it's like it's like it's like mass insanity war is you know it's like we should have solved all of our wars by now the fact that russia and ukraine are going at it like that to me is, it's a real disappointment it's just really ugly i just hate it the fact that it's that that's happening because we're supposed to have evolved beyond that by now so and you know, no, no, this is good. I just want to uh, take what you've said and, and kind of uh, reframe it for people. It's almost as if by reading your books and having more of an understanding of this extra dimensional mind, uh, it's no longer about something we're doing to get in contact with the aliens, but just opening ourselves up that we're already there. The awareness is there, you and that's the when they come through. Yeah, so people have to think, like, when am I going to be, like, one of these people? When am I going to be involved in this? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to prepare people for the fact that they already are extra-dimensional. And that right. when you realize that, you're much more extra-dimensional. Because the awareness within the awareness is really the extra-dimension itself, you know? And when, when you realize it's all on a universe-spanning sort of scale, then you can counter exactly where you want to be with them. You have absolute control of how you counter where your awareness is. Some yeah. people think, at speed of light, you couldn't do that. This isn't about the speed of light. It's like Eldon Bird was saying. It's like everybody else has. I don't want to use the word scalars because it's something that's used for weapons too much. And it's like it's just a stopping a, a a little you know a track in the sand along the way. We're way beyond near scalars. Now it's about like, Jesus, it's about like the whole universe, how the universe is, the energy that is in you. 
it really is. I mean, you know, with people, you know, religious people, they talk about souls. It's like, of course, you know, the energies don't disappear from the universe. It cannot be created or destroyed. But if it's there and it's, you know, it's a coherent network, I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't used to be religious in that sense. And then I had an experience where, oh, God, I want to say what happened, you know. <laughs> I did say like this, Mariam from a town called Magdala shows up, <laughs> shows up like he's physical. I, I won't say anymore because, you know, you probably know what I'm talking about. Essentially, it would be essentially Jesus's wife, you know, say anymore. And people are like, oh, he's a total whack job. Okay. But that would be like something about of extra dimensional consciousness. And the, the other people's discussion in the past, they didn't have any physics or science to talk about. They had no basis for it. You said your soul, this or that. Well, I use science to discuss things for like soul, you know, I, I, because if you, if you just use all religious terms, it's like, yeah, you know, you could have said a lot more. You could have filled in the details, talked about the science. Well, I was going to say, wait a second. Are you <laughs> implying here that maybe the the Christian gods are have some kind of extraterrestrial ties? No, not at all. I mean, I wouldn't say that at all. And I, I don't use the word God at all. The reason I don't use it is because it's always construed in terms of a male. And if anything was going to be, like the better example would be feminine, nonviolent, peaceable, loving, gentle, you know, understanding, exploring emotional relationships. It's very feminine in a sense. Men are like that they're sort of feminine, delicate. You know, if men can, men have a good feminine, delicate side. And if they're aware of that, it's like, they pull up the stops. It's like, forget it. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, try to be a tough, a tough little guy talking about this or that because somebody else is trying to be a little tough guy. You know, did this me, astral form show up for you? Did, did this, did this, uh, no, yeah, I, right? Yeah, yeah, the, this quote unquote. Uh, Not showing up to me, showed up to do. It's like I do. I shouldn't even mention this because some people, <laughs> this is why this is where he's a whack job because you know they don't want to hear about religion. And I'm not trying to talk about religion, but this is being really about the notion of like continuity. See, the real the real science is this is where I should should be taking this. Is that now? Is it time? Isn't time is really changed? Time is like the basic. The only term in physics that is in every other part of physics, time. You know, the idea of physical matter, you know, energy, matter can be turned into energy, which is motion in time in a sense. Or it's, I, I redefine energy as being um, changes of extra dimensional order in complexity. Because, you know, it's like complexity is important. Complexity theory is when you look at the complexity of everything you see, and you don't start from the simple minded or the little part, you don't extrapolate from the little atom to about the whole universe, you start from the universe and then you look back at your little atom. Because if you do it the other way around, uh, you're going, you're going to be a, a, little, a little rat hole trying to, you know, extrapolate every little thing up to, to the universe level. But if you take everything about the universe and you try to sort of see that, see what ha the phenomena that happen around you in terms of how the universe is, it'll make more sense. Because you start on the most complex, the most intricately evolved in the most scientific sort of basic uh, way. And, and then you, 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 you sort of, you look at everything else in those terms, like with James Webb telescope, you know, our time is so cool. It's like, I'm glad it happened during our lifetimes. Cause you know, if like, if you died and then all of a sudden people are they're looking at galaxies that defy everybody's idea of galaxy evolution and supermassive black holes up there at 13.2 billion light years, or, 30 something billion light years, but 13.2 billion years of certain, what they consider certain time, then you would have been like, oh, I got cheated. You know, I wanted to be around when they were talking about this. When, when the, the whole, the whole front, the whole 
it's the horizons, not frontiers. The frontiers is like, you know, some like murderous propaganda from you know, the old West. Um, the horizons of our physics are, the, the challenges are so interesting that you have to think differently. You can't just sit and recite the same old orthodoxy. You have to come up with better ideas, but you have to do better basic definitions. You know? It's like, math, you know, I mean, I just, you know, like if I, I look at Einstein's equation, here's how we phrase it. Energy, changes of extra dimensional order and complexity equals mass. Mass is really alternate time, skip mass. It's alternate time and it's how it, something happens in alternate time. At, at, in, the, in the volume, the speed of light is really in volume of space. Wait, of wait, wait. <laughs> whoa, you just rewrote Einstein's uh, theory? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I substitute extra dimensional terms for it and I can understand it better because he, you know, people think that. Goes I love it. They go from this proton to energy, energy does this, and then we're all fried. No, but if you if you add extra dimensional terms or rephrase it in terms of extra dimensional relationships, it's all extra dimensional. And time is the most important part because like Penrose is saying, Penrose, Penrose talks about like possibly there being, you know, he's not certain about it. I know he, that's what he thinks, but he just, he explains it that way. If there'd be a previous eon in time, and this is merely a more recent eon in time that we live in, but the key thing is that time is the most important value because dark matter could easily be just a larger time continuity where it manifests in terms of the matter here. It's, it's there, but extra dimensionally, you know, like the dark matter halo. What we think about dark matter, it's always this neatly round little halo. It's like the whole universe is right where you are in round terms. It's so cool. It's like, you know, people should be, I think we're, we're only going to be doing better when we start stepping out of our physics and starting with dark matter and extra dimensional time in place of dark energy i just call it extra dimensional time flows because dark energy is second like i'm in pendrels it's just i don't know why there's something about it. you know dark energy but where what is it doing what what causes it you know energy is always like propagated from something or somewhere in some way but if yeah. you thought extra dimensional time and the cool thing is that in a mind it's like your mind could either you could keep your mind as being just this energy here, or you can think of that here on this part of the universe, you can sort of contour extra dimensional time flows. And that's how you're aware of things in other parts of the universe. Near least Brian Green calls it loop cosmology. Makes perfect sense what he's saying, but it's more or less he's talking about the same thing. Let me ask you this. I want to know, you did initially, you were doing investigation into secret government programs on this and i know that we've certainly talked a little bit about that here but but for the most part our focus has been on consciousness and extra-dimensional thought and and these other matters in your research how much do you think the government does know about these extraterrestrials? Do they know anything? I mean, we have the, the uh, you know, obviously the Project Stargate and, and attempts to uh, go into the astral plane in the CIA. I mean, this is documented. They were exploring other realms. Um, but what do you think? Does the government know about ETs? Do they care at all? Uh, what, what, what's the big intel you got after all your years of research? Well, I'm like this. If anybody on this planet knows about and is having actual interactions and it's, you know, the manifestations that the indications that it's actually happening, they'll know about it. They won't talk about it in government because like saying, you know, why are you talking about all this woo-woo stuff in government? We're just supposed to be, you know, writing paperwork about, you know, how this money is being used for that. I think like once anybody knows on this planet, you might as well try to propagate what you know and how you know, not just what you know, 
It's how you know. What and the idea of the concretization of the idea that the, the what is not the what, it's the how and the where and the when, you know, because the how and the where and the when will tell you more. And the what is always like a little definition that, you know, it's just like a little blurb. They want to know the background, their relationships and everything else. But once anybody else, anybody's aware about this, if you're not working, whoever that person is, in my case, for example, and you're not helping other people all over the planet in that, you know, the governments will find out. I think governments know all over the planet. But it's just like a subject. How do you put this under the front page of a newspaper? You don't usually. How do you get this into the conversation? They don't have a space for it. They'd be like saying, I think one of the reluctances was this. After Roswell happened, it's like, this is like a hostile enemy android thing. They were afraid of it. If you talk about that, it's like you just handed the ball to them. You might as well give them everything. Give them, let them just dictate everything and let them stage everything because people will start, will start thinking this is the new sort of authority. This is better than we are, therefore it is. But you know, if you if you portray those as being, you know, weird android thing, meanwhile, ETs have to be better than that. They have to be. And then you continue the discussion. Imagine what it'd be like. People would be talking about their actual minds, their actual experiences. And, you know, you, you know that galaxies are full of ETs all over the place. And there many, many, if not most of them, are being more evolved than we are. Surely they're, they're evolving worlds. But, you know, we're, we're like, you know, millions of years into our evolution. We're literate. We're scientific. The main difference for me is that we're scientific. We have a method. We have a way of describing, then we have ways of describing the phenomena and the phenomenology. And then you have scientific explanations for that. And if you don't know them, then you're going to have to go keep going back to that. Because if you see something happening and it, you know it's like, ah, there's a real happening and there has to be a science for it, you have to keep going back to that to figure it out or you, just, you, don't, you can't go on, you're stuck. And that's how it is. But if people were challenging themselves in that way, our science would be evolving much more rapidly. And I personally think that the way to get people more interested in, in the, the most uh, the most evolved or the new horizons kind of science is tell them, look, if you know, if we stop making weapons, stop the stupid war stuff, stop the hostility and attributing the human nature to be nothing but wrong, and therefore we have weapon, we must have weapons to protect against other wrong kind of people, you've already poisoned the, the, the environment in which you live with suspicion, hostility distance, coldness, and an idea of manipulation. Pretty soon it's a scramble for resources in a time of global warming. It's like, what more stupid possible time to be that way? But if the exploration, if the people were spending more money and talking about sciences and extra-dimensional sort of aspects of this phenomenon, that phenomenon, and even in consciousness, you know, consciousness is, to me, it's where it's all happening. That's where you're going to find out no more about it. Then people would be spending their money much more intelligently. We would live longer. Imagine yeah. 114 years maximum, you know, double that. Well, I do think there is something to what you're saying about the way the consciousness around aliens, Roswell, Men in Black, uh, you know, even people, Project Blue Book, Project Blue Beam, which yeah, right. total total hoax. But, but um, you know, I think when people go down that route – they become more paranoid. The government's lying about disclosure, blah, 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 blah. And it's you're, – you're looking at the consciousness of some of these people, and you're going, 
yo, dude, you need to love your brothers. Like, I feel like in a way we're almost it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when you're when you're so skeptical of the government and and fearful of the men in black, then in turn they get more power. I see what you're saying there Um, versus if we open ourselves up to a different relationship to the cosmos, um, then, you know, we all get in a higher vibration. I guess the final thing I would ask you is, George, in your understanding of this, I could see someone saying, um, or at least I, I'm thinking, you know, one of the common criticisms of heaven and hell um, is that, you know, if you go to heaven where everything's good, don't you need the negative to understand the positive? And I think that's a criticism with the ETs. People, people say, well, they're all loving and benevolent, but... Does that mean they have a personality? Can they always be loving and benevolent? What, is it, what does that mean? I mean, is it – my question is I'm guessing it's probably because most of it is beyond my understanding that it's possible to just live from a place of love always. But for those of us who are here on this earth and go, no, there's no feeling love and experiencing love without heartbreak – how would you how would you apply that in more human terms? How would you explain it so that we can get that this is a possibility in our universe? I'd say it's like if you thought of it as love, you know, which for all those other people, like the L word, it's like you know, it's like a, a bad word. They don't use the L word because all of a sudden you're you're exposing yourself. But if you don't know that as your own internal basis, as the relation, the only relationships that really communicate. All you can be seeking is understandings and relationships that are within that, you know, that kind of relationship. And that's prevailing. I mean, nothing else makes any sense. Um, it's like, I think in a sense, it's like people have this, this skepticism because religion came along, was taken over by kings, they killed people, and then they had the church to use it. And if you didn't obey with the church, the church killed you. You know, so so much for love, right? It's like, it, was, it was always manipulated. But if you're not thinking in terms of like, one person or like your relationship with like this woman or this other man depending on how you are if it's love of your kind and your people it's like part of an internal culture of consciousness it's the most important relationship of all it really is and it's not so it's, you can't manipulate if it's not manipulative and it's not constraining and it's not going to break your heart because you know what i mean like, love in a sense is like you know like say you're a mother's love for her, her kids you know it's like the purest sweetest possible thing it's like uh it's like you're always like why can't everybody else love me like that? You know, wouldn't that be nice? Well, everybody else did love everybody else in the way that they've been loved, which is pretty much what they do. Romance is romance. We, we just put romance aside because that's so personal and private. It's like, okay, sure. You know, everybody, everybody's looking for love, but you know, in, in the larger in the interactions with other people, it's like, you know, you know, they love other people who love them, which makes it all interesting and close and personal because in consciousness, it's like close uh, whether it's considered personal, it's close. It's like you're inside. It's like first, it's like the, you know, it's like the speed of light, all distances shortened to zero. But if you Mars were to exceed light, you'd be extra dimensionally immersing other other you know spaces into themselves. It'd be like internally, extra dimensionally coexisting, and that's what extra dimensional light is. Like so, if there's a slightly faster ETs, they don't talk about faster than light. Like this is how it is. They talk about plus or minus the speed of light. Yeah, and that's like that mean, means that like any slightest fluctuation that would exceed light speed in a sense would immediately cycle internally. So like we're extra dimensionally sort of merged in a sense, but this is extra dimensional. It's like the distance is now first they shorten at the speed of light, the time seems to sort of slow to zero. 
But then anything beyond that is like, it starts to cycle into both the past and other ways. It, it immediately becomes internally, ah, it's like it extra-dimensionally sort of co-merge, not merge, because merge sounds like a solid, but it's, it's more like energy in cloud-like. It's an extra space that cycles internally, and that's what happens. That's where the that's where extra dimension makes perfect sense. No, no, this. I mean, it, it's a really good explanation. Uh, I love this idea that it's a parental love. It's 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 the the love from from the one generation to the next, and also it makes me feel better about uh, all all the beautiful alien women Captain Kirk got with because now I'm going ah you just kissed your mom, um, yeah. so that's good. Um, but yes, no, no. Uh, in all seriousness, George, um, I I think this is very mind blowing stuff. Again, everybody should. When can we expect these books to come out? Uh, anything, anything soon? I mean, I'm gonna link people to your page on Amazon where they can get the first book, Alien Mind. The or thoughts even my Facebook people. page, you know, because I'm always talking about stuff. Well, I yeah, think sure. My writings every day, almost every other few days, I'll put an extended excerpt. You know, maybe it's like a page or something, because you know it's it's something nobody else has ever said, and I realized that I started there, and then it became extra dimensional. And I was talking about the relationships internally, extra dimensionally, whereas like yeah. time within time, space within space, and that's what's more interesting, because that's the point of me writing is moving on to these extra dimensional sort of relationships that are like they're not just the shortening of distances it's how they you know when it, it's almost non-physical it cycles into other being into other spaces galaxies are like you know it's like dark matter is really like a mer like a, a co -mer not merge but it's like extra dimensionally intersuspended internally um form of you know just whatever the word would be existence yeah wow Super interesting. Well, we'll link to your page. George Lobono, uh, a man who is who is on the edges of all the galaxies, uh, synthesizing it, bringing it to us so that we can uh, all love each other a little more. Uh, within, a matter, within a matter of months, I should have one or both. Books. Oh, good. In, in print, you know, certainly out. Definitely. Well, look, we're excited uh, for that work to come out. George, such an interesting discussion. Thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time and for uh, sharing your experience and knowledge. Thank you, Greg. George Lobono. What a mind on that guy. Though... If we're all part of the same extra-dimensional, extraterrestrial reality, really, his mind is your mind. And my mind is his mind. I knew I was going to take credit somehow. Hey, on this whole aliens are lifeless robots, and the use of the word android, I don't know about you, but whenever I get that green text from someone on an android phone, doesn't it seem a little lifeless? He might be on to something. I want to thank Rodney McGilvery for the theme music. I want to thank Zero Boy for the pre-theme music. I want to thank you for listening. Check out George's work. It's wild.